Well, this is lesson six on our study on building revival, a study of post-exilic Israel. And this will be our final lesson on Ezra's role. Uh, then next week, we'll move on to Nehemiah. We've already previously covered Zerubbabel in the second temple. But we're, we've been looking at Ezra and his spiritual reforms that he brought. So just as a review, so that you, you understand where we're at, we've covered basically 800 years, well, actually 1,200 years of Israel's history from Abraham up to the exile, Babylonian captivity, the divided kingdoms, and then they were carried away into Assyria. The northern kingdom was Israel's carried into Assyria, and they never returned. They intermarried and dispersed their bloodline. Judah, which was uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they were carried away 120 years later after Israel's exile. They were carried away directly due east into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and there they stayed for 70 years until the Persian king Cyrus conquered Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And Cyrus, as the Jews believed by the hand of Daniel, Cyrus found himself in Isaiah the prophet, where Isaiah prophesied and said, oh, Cyrus, my shepherd, Cyrus, my anointed one, you'll let my people go and you'll rebuild my temple for me. Cyrus found himself and that's what he did. He, he, the first year he became king, he issued a decree that all the Jews were free to go back to Israel and he commanded them actually, if you read there Ezra chapter one, he commanded them to build their God a temple in Israel. So it was the king's command and 50,000 Jews returned with Zerubbabel or also known as Shesh Bazar, the governor over Judea, Jerusalem. And that's what they began to do. So then they finished the temple. And then about 80 years later, it brings us to the time of Ezra. We were talking about building a revival and everybody that came out of exile, they had a job to do and it was never easy. We've also previously covered how a lot of folks that went, they were excited for the revival at first, but then work was required of them. And they weren't so excited. And even under Zerubbabel, some folks just quit and went back to Persia. Like a lot of Christians. You mean we got to come to church again? No, you get to come to church. You mean we have to have a Sunday night service? No, you can go to a donut church and not do anything. You mean we have to come to prayer meeting? No, you get to come to prayer meeting. Even today in the church, Christians who've been redeemed from Persian captivity, from Babylon, they're not thankful. They're thankful to be out of slavery, but not enough to finish crossing the desert to go build something for God. And really the American church, as you know, is not a strong one. And you and I make up the American church. So we have to endeavor to be stronger, more sold out for Jesus Christ, more determined, more focused. Don't, as we say, don't ever think you're doing God a favor. The second you think you've done God a favor, you really tell off on how prideful we really are. It is God who has done us a favor. It is God who has redeemed us, who purchased us when we were yet his enemy. And the second you think you've done God a favor by witnessing to somebody, by giving an offering, by showing up for a service, when, you know, I'm just a two a weeker, but this week I went to three. God, you should be proud of me. God says you're doing the bare minimum, son. Amen. Well, that's a weak amen, but, you know, so be it. That's why churches are cutting out Sunday school. That's why churches are cutting out midweek services. why churches are cutting out Sunday night service, because they know the folks aren't interested. You just wait till they successfully drop a nuke somewhere in the U.S. Folks will want God real quick till the newness wears off again. All right, let's move on to the Bible here. Ezra's spiritual reforms, you don't want to recognize the day we live in. Everybody knows it's coming to an end quick. Everybody can feel it. We go to Africa, they feel it in Africa. We talk to our European friends, they feel it in Europe. Things are coming to an end quick. And you got to be found serving Jesus Christ. 
You can't just keep marching to your own beat wanting to be blessed like an American. Our country's falling apart. Ezra's spiritual reforms. As previously covered, where this is our sixth lesson, so we've had five other lessons, the Jews had received unprecedented favor from five Persian kings and financial support from two of those kings all over a period of nearly 100 years from King Cyrus to King Darius. Then with the ascension of Artaxerxes to the Persian throne, the Jews in Jerusalem faced their first royal opposition. For the first time in five kings, Artaxerxes being the sixth, they all of a sudden have no favor. Rather, from the throne of Persia in Shushan, they have opposition. That's what we came up to until last week. Ezra made a request of King Artaxerxes to travel to Jerusalem and inquire of the condition of the Jews according to the law of Moses. Ezra wanted to know why they had lost favor with Persia. You know, if, if for 100 years you've had unprecedented favor with pagan kings and you honestly had pagan kings commanded you, commanding you, go build your God a temple, I don't want him mad at me. In fact, the king said that, go build the God of Israel a temple, build him a house, build a city. Here, take some money because I want it to go well for me and my sons. That's what the Persian king said. For the first time in 100 years, the Persian kings don't like Israel. And Ezra being a scribe and an apt pupil of the word and a priest who can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron, he knew God's word. He didn't dare shake his fist and said, God's a liar, like a bunch of nut jobs do in this in the church now. Well, if God don't come through, he's a liar. Ezra said, if somebody's gone wrong, it isn't God, it's us. Uh, Sir King, do you mind if I go to Israel to see what's going on there? He didn't tell him what he was looking for, but he knew if the king didn't like his people, it was God's hand against his people because it was God's hand for his people that gave him favor with the other Persian kings. Now all of a sudden, God's hand is against his own people. We could learn a lot from that. We often like to shake our fist at God and blame him, but what you ought to do is judge yourself according to the law of God, according to the word, as Ezra was about to do. He was going to go to Jerusalem and judge Israel. Now, in America, we've been taught not to judge anything. Psychology from the 50s and 60s has taught us not to judge anything. Now, the New Testament teaches us, he that spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no one. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. That means you can be a fruit inspector. And we don't judge to condemnation to say you're altogether hopeless, but we can judge and say, your hair is blonde. Well, who are you to judge me? Your hair is long. That's sin. Who are you to judge me, says the Christian who's dirty. Ezra was commissioned of God to go judge Israel. Did you know that Israel had 350 years of judges and they were anointed to judge we are so goofy because we're more American than we are Christian. We're more pop psychology than we are word people. And you know, the Lord still has one of these names called the righteous judge. Yeah. And he did say in Revelation, I will come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth, except you repent because I have somewhat against you. You mean Jesus is still judging us? Yeah. We ought to judge ourselves. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 says. When, let a man examine himself. That's what we do during communion. Every communion service is a self-examination service. That way we partake of the cup worthily and not to condemnation. So Ezra, he asks the king, sir, can I go home and judge my people? And the king says, sure. Yeah, if that's what you want to do. And so he wants to go find out why have they lost favor for the first time in 100 years. 
Look at our next section. Syncretism. We've been covering this for three weeks now. Syncretism. Ezra discovered syncretism at work yet again in Jerusalem. Now, uh, we'll cover it again just as a review. Syncretism is a theological term, and it basically means the attempted synchronization, the attempted combining of the holy with the unholy, the attempted combining and reconciling of the clean with the unclean, with the profane with the devoted and the devout. That is syncretism. You're trying to synchronize sin with God. And the problem is it never works. When when theologians talk about Old Testament syncretism, they're specifically referring to intermarrying with the heathen nations. When we talk about syncretism in the church, we could talk about the ecumenical movement. And now we're talking about even the hyper-grace movement where we're trying to wink at sin and tell you if you want to be spiritual, loosen up. If you want to be holy, go and watch some porn. If you want to be used of God, go drink some beer. That's syncretism in the church today. The attempt to combine diametrically opposed views, theologies, doctrines. By definition, they should not mix, but syncretism is the attempted mixing of them. And you know what always wins? The sin. God never wins. Because the second you contaminate it, it's altogether worthless. The second you contaminate it, it's altogether worthless. It only takes one cell of Giardia to ruin a bottle of water. It's not 99.9% pure. It's all tainted. Right? So that's what syncretism. When Ezra gets back to Jerusalem, he finds out the cause very quickly. Syncretism. The Jews have gotten dirty. We're talking about building revival and how you build revival is clean living. All right, let's look at this verse here, Ezra 9, 1b and 2b. Uh, we, we're abbreviating scriptures just for time's sake. You can go look these up. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, so that the holy seed have mingled or to braid. That's what the problem is. They're trying to interweave their life with the world. You and I do the same thing. Amen. And you try to justify it. You weave God in and out of your life rather than pulling all the junk out of your life and having a braid that's nothing but God and the word and pure living and clean living. You think, well, it's just one strand of filth in my braid. It's just, it's just one strand. Go ahead, weave some poison ivy in your hair. You'll never recognize you have hair. You won't even be mindful there. All you'll be mindful of is the poison ivy. Go ahead, weave a a rattlesnake in your hair. All of a sudden, we don't see the hair at all. All we can see is the rattlesnake. It just takes a little dab. Jesus Christ said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just one pinch of yeast will affect the whole batter, the whole bunch of dough. So that the holy seed have mingled or braided themselves with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. We see this today. We see the preachers of the land leading us in syncretism. The preachers of the land, the pulpiteers, those on Christian television, those are the ones teaching us to loosen up. Those are the ones teaching us that alcohol is okay. Those are the ones teaching us not to judge each other. When the New Testament teaches totally contrary to that, to answer any question about alcohol at all, the Bible says in the Gospels, if we still believe the Gospels, it's uh, really only in the last 20 years have people become stupid enough to question the Gospels. It took 6,000 years of man to get stupid enough to throw the Gospels out. 
Jesus said, if anything you do causes a baby Christian to stumble, you should go hang yourself by a millstone and go jump into a deep lake. So you can fight for your right to drink wine. You can fight for your right to drink non-alcoholic duels. But if you cause a Christian to stumble in anything you do, Jesus Christ prescribes suicide to you. He said it would be better for you that a millstone were hanged about your neck and you were to go drown in a lake. So fight for your right to look at whatever you want to. Fight for your right to drink whatever you're addicted to. Because that's the real problem. You can't walk away from it. So you're bound in the flesh. So you're a slave to your carnal nature. So you're really not free. Because anything you can't walk away from, you're bound to. Fight for that right, but Jesus says you deserve a millstone. That weighs about a thousand pounds. Amen. The hand of the princes and rulers have been, this is preaching a little bit more than it's teaching this morning. Who here is drinking O'Doul's? That's non-alcoholic, Pastor. You still look like a wine-bibber. The hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. Anytime the leaders get dirty, the people will always follow. God has always hated his people mixing the holy with the unholy and the clean with the unclean. Deuteronomy 12 says, When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee. Now this is, uh, this is approximately 800 years before Ezra. Deuteronomy is being written approximately 800 years before Ezra. So this is what God said in the very beginning. When the Lord God cuts nations off before thee, take heed to yourself that you be not snared by following them. We could preach that today. Quit following the Joneses. Don't be snared by following the heathen after they, th that they be destroyed from before thee. So God wipes them out and you're still looking for a reason to follow them? God's already declared a curse on Hollywood and we're still trying to follow that? God, you know, the hand of God's against NFL, NHL, all that heathenistic stuff in there, yet we want to follow that? I'd even tell you God doesn't support the Christian music industry and we want to follow that too? It's an industry. There's perversion there. You know how many homosexuals and bisexuals produce gospel music? Even in the black church, the most foremost gospel authors and writers are homosexuals. In the black circles, they have a term called being turned out. This is common in black churches. And what it means is when somebody grows up in the youth group in a black church and they turn homosexual, in the black church in America, they have a term. They say, who turned them out? which is to say which youth leader in our church, which music director, or choir director in our church fondled that boy to make him gay. That is a common black cultural experience in America. The Church of God in Christ, which is the, from the foremost black Pentecostal denominations in our country, is eat up with pedophilia. And mostly in their music ministry. Oh, you look surprised. Yeah. Well, there you go. Be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these folks worship their gods? We will do likewise. Uh, that's all the dancing you see in churches now. How, how does the world dance? Let's bring that into the altar of God. How does the world make music? Let's bring that into the altar of God. How does the world dress? Let's bring that into the altar of God. How does the world draw a crowd? Smoke machines and light shows? Let's bring that into the church. God said in the beginning, do not follow after them and ask, how do they do it? We 
will do likewise. That's what the church is doing right now. They're looking to Hollywood for cues how to grow a crowd. The, oh, the world likes it like this. The world doesn't know what they like. Even so will I do likewise. The NIV says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates have they done unto their gods. Syncretism is already in the church. But we're teaching on how to build revival. And you don't build revival looking to the world. You build revival looking in the scriptures. You build revival looking in prayer. You build revival looking unto Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has never needed lights and smoke machines to have revival. Jesus Christ makes the light and the smoke. In Elijah's day, he just called it down from heaven. In the modern church, we raise up money to go buy it from Hollywood. I'd rather have Elijah's smoke and lights than the donut churches smoke and lights. But as one man of God said, the only reason churches have smoke and lights is because they've lost God. When you don't have the glory cloud, you got to produce your own with a button. The Lord is here. Now you just hit a button on the smoke machine you borrowed from Ozzy Osbourne. All right. Two kinds of revivals. This is really preaching awesome this morning. This is just supposed to be good old-fashioned Baptist Sunday school. God's people seem to always be living in one of two revivals. Either a revival of syncretism or a revival of holiness. One or two is always happening. One of the two. When holiness flows, syncretism will ebb like a tide. When holiness ebbs, syncretism will flow. Even in our church, in the years that I have pastored us, we have had ebbing and flowing in our personal lives of holiness and syncretism. We go through seasons where we clean up everything. We quit watching TV that we might pray more. We quit going out to eat that we might have something to give in an offering. We, we get rid of books and music and we live clean and we do nothing but listen to worship music. And then that tends to recede and syncretism kind of flows back in. We start letting filth choke up on the shores of our life. And then we repent of that. And then oh, I wasted all that money. I bought all those movies back that I got rid of the last time holiness was flowing. And I went and bought them all back, went back to iTunes, downloaded them all again. And then we start to seek God again. Boy, how exhausting is it when we're tossed to and fro between holiness and syncretism and holiness and syncretism. Wouldn't it be nice just to live in 100 years of revival? Just to be consistent. We teach around here, you ought, Christians ought to be the most consistent, stable people on the planet. Instead of, you know, buying an Xbox, selling an Xbox. Buying an Xbox, selling an Xbox. Buying an Xbox, selling an Xbox. Whatever God told you to do, just do it and keep it done. Amen. Ezra's three-step response to discovering there was syncretism in his people. Ezra truly had no idea what had gone wrong in Jerusalem. He had no idea. That's why he wanted to make a 900-mile trip. That's a big commitment. This thing is so important to God, so important to this scribe, this priest, Ezra. He, he's willing, he was born in captivity. He's willing to leave all he knows to go home to the motherland to troubleshoot a stubborn people. Ezra's response to the news of revived syncretism is the key to starting any God-filled revival. It's a good little allegory here. Three steps he did. Number one, brokenness. And when I heard this thing, Ezra says, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked out the hair of my head and of my beard. 
And I sat down astonished, stunned, stupefied. He looked at God's people and said, you're so stupid, now I'm stupefied. How can you do this? And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. He sat in a stupor for hours. He was speechless. He, he was just without words. Have you ever heard a report that somebody you knew did something and what they d- did was so horrible or so stupid you were just speechless? I can't even say what were they thinking because I can't even think to think what they were thinking because it's that dumb. This thing so struck Ezra the priest's heart, he was stupefied for several hours. After he tore his clothes, after he pulled his beard out, after he pulled his hair out and he just sat there stupefied, astonished that after everything God has done for these people, they've gone back to the original sin of mixing the world in with their life. After they've come out of captivity, after the Lord has made sure they could build a temple, after he's made them a nation again, and after just a few years, we're back to this? Stupefied brokenness. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, my affliction, or as one translation says, my depression. This thing put a spiritual depression on him. This is a true brokenness. Until we, this is the first step. Until you're truly broken, you're not going to sell your Xbox and keep it sold. You're not going to fast food and, and, and keep your weight off, whatever the Lord's told you to do. You're not going to stop your spending, overspending, and keep it done. Until you're truly broken, this is just throwing hope after a bad habit. You've got to be truly broken. This is repentance. He was truly broken. He wasn't guilty of any of these sins, but he was truly broken over them. He pulled his beard out for what they did, not for what he did. You ever try to pull your beard out? You ever try to pull your own hair out? You ever been so mad you could just tear your own clothes? Not Hulk Hogan style, that's a flimsy little t-shirt, but tear a big garment. He was truly broken. We get convicted in service. That's not brokenness, that's conviction. And then we go out there and we buy Xbox back. We go out there and we eat another super large pizza. We go out there and overspend again. We go out and we don't pray for our marriage that's falling apart. We're just convicted. Conviction is totally different than brokenness. Brokenness means you have a true walk with God. Conviction just means you're in the presence of God. A lot of folks skip church because they get convicted when they come. Brokenness trumps conviction. You'll stay in the midst of brokenness. Donut churches are fast growing because there's no conviction there. People feel good for going to donut church. They feel awesome though they're being lied to. We don't want just conviction. I can preach a sermon that will convict you sore, but are you truly broken? When you're broken, I don't have to be there harping over you as your pastor. When you're truly broken, you'll go home and repent to God. You don't even have to wait for the altar call. So much of what we do is just conviction by the Holy Spirit, trying to get our heart to truly be broken. And we need to make sure there's a big distinction in our life between the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is a good thing, and a brokenness that is your response to the conviction. Everybody responds to conviction differently. Some folks are convicted and they quit church. Some folks are convicted and they point the finger at the pastor and say, how dare you, that's a mean preacher. That's a judgmental preacher. I didn't convict you, I just preached the word. You're mad at God. Some people get convicted, they change churches. Brokenness is the proper response to Holy Spirit conviction. 
This man wasn't even guilty of this sin and he was broken for his people. Ezra was horrified at the news of the people's sin. This sin was so atrocious and blatant, it literally left him speechless. All he could do was tear his clothes and pull his hair and beard out. The news of the people's syncretism even caused a depression or heaviness to fall upon him for several hours. Truly, his heart was broken because of what the people had done. He wasn't convicted. He went to Israel because he had convictions. He wasn't convicted. He was broken. And we've got to learn the difference. You can come to every service and be convicted every service and never make a change. But once that conviction falls upon you in a service, you need to do something about it. It shows the cracks in your heart. You need to go home and make sure you break it open and say, Lord, I'm so convicted, but I'm not broken. I want to be broken for you. I want to be more than just convicted by your Holy Spirit and by the word knowing I'm wrong. I want to actually be broken and disgusted by my own sin. You really, as a Christian, have to get to a place where you can say, as Paul said in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. That's brokenness. Not, man, that's a rough service. That was convicting. You stepped on my toes. I wasn't aiming for your toes. I was aiming for your heart. Your toes, you can curl up. Move your feet. I wasn't aiming for your toes. We were aiming for your heart. So what'd you do, block it? You're like a monkey, put your feet up. Do some monkey foo. Now, We've all been convicted and done nothing about it. Just couldn't wait to get out of service. Conviction, that's a shallow thing. Even in church services when you're preaching to the lost, some will be convicted and some will come to the altar. Number two, what's the second thing he should do? Once you're broken, what do you do? Prayer and repentance. I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, oh my God, I am ashamed. He didn't even do anything but he was truly broken. I am ashamed and I blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass is grown up into the heavens. And now, O oh God, what shall we say after this? Seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Should we again break your commandments and join in affinity and intermarry with the people of these abominations? Some of you are intermarried to your sin. How could you possibly divorce it? I'm married to it. So that there should be no remnant nor escaping, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. He found the reason they lost favor. This sin, we cannot stand before thee because of this. Ezra 10.1, now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, that's why we give altar calls so you can do this in the house of God. Now you can repent in your car, but the best time to strike is while the iron's hot and you're convicted. It's why we give altar calls so you can act on it without any care of what people are thinking. If you're truly broken, you don't care what people behind you think. You just want to get things right with God. We're in a generation that people don't want to be right with God. They want to make God their friend. God's not interested in being your friend. Don't you have enough friends? God wants to be your God and your Lord. We're just wanting to be buddies with him because you can sin against a buddy. You cannot sin against a God. If you sin against your buddy, they got to forgive me because we're buds. He knows my heart. And God Almighty is a little different than that. 
They're, they're assembled unto him out of Israel, very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. The second thing you have to do is prayer and repentance. It's not enough to be convicted. You can be convicted and never pray. You can be convicted and never repent. You can know you're wrong your whole life and never make any changes. That's not brokenheartedness. That's not repentance. That's just conviction. We think we've had a move of God because we got convicted. How many times must the Lord convict you over your sin before you do something about it? Yes, you're redeemed, but you are still dirty. Anybody here not sinned today yet? <laughs> Anybody not sinned yesterday? Yeah, you're forgiven. Yeah, you're redeemed. But there's still repentance that needs to take place. Ezra acknowledged the sins of Israel and made no excuses for them. The true stakes are revealed here. Israel faced certain annihilation for this sin. That's what he said, so that there should be no remnant or escaping. He said, if we don't get this thing fixed, we will not recover ourselves this time. That's the severity here. Even though this is the same sin they've been doing for 800 years, this is the absolute final straw. This whole uh, syncretism is why they were made slaves to the Babylonians. Even in Deuteronomy 28, the great chapter on blessings and cursings, the cursings say you will be carried off as slaves into another nation. You will look for your children and you will not find them for other people will raise them. He said, and this you will do in foreign nations because you have left me and you have gone after the other nations. He prophesied it 800 years before it happened that it would happen. And here they are still doing it. And Ezra reveals, if we don't get this right, there'll be nothing left. And that's the true stakes. I know this isn't the squishy gospel you're used to from the 60s and 70s when the hippies were smoking pot and sleeping around. But you're all saved. So you ought to act like it. Yeah, because we're supposed to win people. We're not just playing little Southern Baptist, Southern Tennessee uh, religion. We're talking about the end of all things is at hand. And people are going to go to hell if we don't live it in front of them and win them to Jesus Christ. We're not here for some theological discussion. We're here to be the church, to perfect the saints, and to get your life cleaned up. You're still a child in the eyes of God, and children still need to grow up. Amen. Number three, action. As if prayer and repentance wasn't enough action. Do you know smugness isn't a fruit of the Spirit? Smug, you know, to be smug. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. God doesn't appreciate smugness. All right. Action. Ezra 10, 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, You have transgressed. That's so judgmental. That's so rude. You've transgressed. And have taken strange wives. How dare you call my wife strange? <laughs> to increase the trespass of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, we disagree. We're going to have a vote. We didn't ask you to come here. All in favor say aye. And the nays have it. Yep, we don't like you. Go home to Shushan. That's what happens when your church is run by congregational vote. All the congregation said, as thou hast said, so must we do. That doesn't fly in congregational style government. True repentance is always followed by action. In this case, the action demanded by God was a national wave of separation and divorce from the people of the land. 
King Artaxerxes had commissioned and authorized Ezra to check on the condition of Jerusalem. He had authorized him to teach the law of God, and he had authorized him, him to, te- to execute judgment upon those that refused to do the law of God. We covered that last week's class. Once again, God had used a Persian king to authorize and aid in revival. Even though this king had resisted him, this same king, Artaxerxes, had also authorized Ezra to fix whatever needed to be fixed and given him all power necessary to fix it. So they didn't need money to build anything. They needed repentance. So oddly enough, by the sovereign hand of God, Artaxerxes is still helping revival. Because he authorizes the scribe to teach the law of God to everybody who knows it and doesn't know it. And those that don't do it, we covered this last week, it's part of his six-point commission, to execute judgment, to, to murder or to have them killed if they have to be killed, to excommunicate them or to require their property of them. There were several things they could do to enforce the law. Ezra 10.5, then Ezra rose and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. They promised him. They didn't take a vote. Well, we disagree. Uh, we, you know, divorce isn't proper. And we're not teaching divorce here. Understand that. But these were married women they married. Some of them, it goes on to tell us they had children. And Ezra said, get rid of the kids too. Of course, then again, God told uh, Abraham, get rid of Ishmael. The boy was 13. What does your heart say about getting rid of your 13-year-old son? Thank God we don't live in those times, but the heart of it's still the same. Ezra used his authority to demand that all those with him swear to an oath of obedience and commitment, and they did. This is what it takes to have revival. Not, we're not talking about divorcing your wife or your kids. We're talking about a commitment to whatever it takes to get God to move. And in our generation, in our dispensation, it means a commitment to holiness and divorcing yourself from filth, divorcing yourself from sin, divorcing yourself from the sweetest little thing you've mixed. See, you've got stuff in your life, you've intermarried and you've produced children that are so dear to you, but God never authorized you to produce that child, that hobby, that, that, that namesake, that maybe that business, maybe that mental philosophy, maybe the way you fancy yourself. You've produced a child and God never authorized it. The commitment we're looking at here is a commitment to get rid of whatever God says get rid of. That's how you build revival. The severity, stay with me here. Don't fall asleep. You should go to bed early. You don't fall asleep on your job, do you? I mean, fall asleep on me, fine, but fall asleep on Pharaoh too. Be fair. If you're gonna disrespect God, disrespect Pharaoh. In order to deal with the widespread syncretism, Ezra, the princes, and the elders issued a severe ultimatum in order to gather the remnant of Jews dwelling in Judea. So they want to get everybody together to deal with this whole situation. So how do you do that? Well, you give them a severe ultimatum. And they made proclamation throughout Judah, Jerusalem, to all the children of captivity that they should gather themselves together into Jerusalem and that whosoever would not come within three days. So you had three days to come do this who would not come in three days according to the counsel of the prince of the elders, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. You get all your property possessed and you get kicked out. If you won't come to Jerusalem and let us deal with this, you're no longer one of us and we take all your possessions. (laughs) Ezra was authorized by the king to make that decision. God's using a king to bring revival. I think God means business. The Jews were given three days to come to the meeting to have their sin exposed. Those that failed to show would forfeit all their belongings and be ostracized from the body of believers. Oddly enough, 
Every man in Judah and Benjamin attended the meeting. You can't get them because they love God. You can get them because they love their stuff. Materialism always seems to trump God. Revival requires severe motivation. Yeah. The revival sermon, page and a half left here. Stay with me. We're trying to fight this thing in our country. Everywhere you turn, Christianity's being attacked and mocked. Islam's being promoted. Hinduism's being promoted. Gaia, earth worship's being promoted. We are now looked down upon as the pagan religion. We are now looked down upon as the weird people. They now on CNN and Fox News and, and all these websites, they're now having to explain the Christian holidays to our nation. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, why is Christmas important to Christians? What does Easter really represent? What is the Passover? Well, all this junk. Uh, this was the Christian nation. 30 years ago, if you didn't know, you were the knucklehead. And in one generation, we've gone so stupid from God. And therefore, since the world, the country doesn't know what Christianity is, then CNN gets to tell them what it is. Yeah. All right. The revival sermon. Ezra's message to the backslidden Jews reveals to us the catalyst necessary to rekindle the fires of God. What is the catalyst? Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, you have transgressed, taken strange wives to increase the trespass. Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers. Notice he doesn't call him the Lord God of you. He says, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, because obviously he's not your God anymore. You got to recognize when God has stopped being your God. God still feels the same way about this. He didn't get saved at the cross. We get saved at the cross. And the reason you sin is because you stop serving God for that moment. Now, he might still be your savior. You might still have the Holy Spirit, but you'll serve whatever is your God. And Ezra told this whole nation, repent to the God of your fathers. He didn't say repent to your God. He said the God of your fathers. Because they obviously had not made him their God anymore. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers. Do his pleasure. Separate yourselves from the people of and from the strange wives. Revival requires a purging of sin by those who know better. Revival begins when those who are trained begin to live what they know. That's why we deal so severely with this here. You guys are the senior saints. You guys are the committed ones. Revival begins when those who are trained begin to live what they know. We have to live what we know. Knowing it isn't good enough. My, my degrees in geology, I know evolution. I don't live it. I understand 6 billion years of earth age or 4.9 billion. I understand that. It doesn't mean I live it or believe it. You can know the Bible. It doesn't mean you know it or believe it or live it. It does you no good in your head. The unexpected response, that's a very short sermon, one verse or two verses. You're dirty, get it right. The response to Ezra's sermon is quite astonishing. Then all the congregation answered. All the congregation. You know it's a move of God when all the congregation's in agreement. And they said with a loud voice, they screamed back at him. As thou hast said, so must we do. But there are, the people are many, and it is a time of much rain. It was the rainy season. And we are not able to stand outside. Neither is this a work of one day or two. So to clean this up is going to take more than a day or two. For we are many that have transgressed. So many of us are involved in this sin, as the NIV says. Notice they're telling off on themselves. Not just me, is Earl and Jay, Marcelino, the lot of us. Greg, Marlon, Joel, 
It's going to take a long time, Ezra. You've been, you don't know what it's like here in Jerusalem. We are dirty people. They said, you're right. But can we have more than a day or two to get this thing right? So many of us are involved in this sin. They start telling off on each other. Let now our rulers of all the congregation stand and let them all uh, which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. The whole of Judah and Benjamin openly confess their guilt. That's what we try to do with an altar call, not to get you to stand with the microphone and say, I am Greg and I am a sinaholic. It has been six days since I sinned. We're not looking for that. But we want you to come to the altar and say, I, I'm not right and I want to be right. In the Bible, they didn't have a problem acknowledging it, standing up and saying, I've got a strange wife. Honey, you are strange, trust me. And I should have married you. I knew better. Mama told me not to marry you. She's strange and I'm guilty. And I'm going to divorce you because that's what my God wants. I'm getting the sin out. Well, we just sit there and say, I ain't going to the altar. I ain't lifting my hand. I can make this right on my own. If you can make it right on your own, how come God had to send Ezra? They needed help. They also acknowledged that it was widespread and that it could not be dealt with in just a day or two. Due to the rainy season, they asked for each guilty man to come at an appointed time and stand before his local ruler, his local elder, and his local judge. They mean they were judging people back then? In order to put out the strange wives and mixed children. Now again, we're not against mixed children. We're not against mixed marriages. But the, the allegory that we take from this is sin. Marrying yourself to sin and the weird things it produces in your life. We're not, we got a lot of mixed couples in this church. God loves them. I love them. We got lots of mixed kids in this church. God loves them. I love them. We're not, we're not taking this. This thing is not racial, racial here at all. This is all about filth and sin. Marry who you want to as long as they're a Christian. Have as many mixed kids as you want to. White kids are ugly. Mixed kids are beautiful. <laughs> Except for my white kid. She's gorgeous. <laughs> the total divorce proceedings took three months. That's a lot of sin. They weren't kidding when it would, wouldn't take a day or two. Three months, and these were people going to their local townships to deal with it. That's a lot of guilty people. This thing was everywhere. Out of an entire remnant of Jews, many of which were guilty, only four men resisted Ezra's decree. Jonathan, Jehazai, Meshulam, and Shabbathai. Of all the family names that are listed as having originally come with Zerubbabel a hundred years earlier, 25% were found guilty of syncretism in Ezra's day. One-fourth of those that built the temple were guilty of syncretism 80 years later. Just because you serve God today doesn't mean you will a year from now. Just because you help us build the house of God today doesn't mean you're going to serve God a year from now. 25% of the families that came with Zerubbabel are listed in the list of guilty families. You just have to judge your heart and stay clean with all of your heart. Spiritual divorce, the beginning of revival. Ezra's spiritual reforms were very simple. Divorce yourself from the things God hates in your life. The New Testament teaches us the same thing. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. James calls us sinners. That's not very nice. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's so judgmental, James, the apostle, the pastor. How judgmental. You wouldn't make it in today's post-psychological uh, revived America. You're so mean, James. James, 
the half-brother of Jesus, the apostle of the Lord, he called his church, you bunch of sinners. He goes on to say, you spiritual adulterers. That's not how you win friends and influence people and build a big seeker-friendly work and make the community feel welcome. It's the Bible. That's our problem. We start trying to tell God how to do things. Therefore, come out from among them, 2 Corinthians, separate, be you separate, says the Lord, touch not the unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Not the Lord Savior, the Lord Almighty. James 4, 4, you adulterers and adulteresses. How do you build your church, James, calling your church family adulterers and adulteresses? Know you not that the friendship of the world, the friendship of the world, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the New Testament equivalent of what Ezra enforced. We're not teaching divorce. You're to keep your covenant with your wife. We understand that. What we are teaching, though, is that revival begins by divorcing yourself from filth. The quickest way to dilute a move of God is to let sin in and to justify sin and to excuse sin and to not confront sin. Now, in our country, we are so politically correct. We're so worried about what everybody thinks about us. We'll actually throw our convictions away so we don't hurt your immature feelings. Yet at the same time, we claim we love people who just shoot us straight. We're watching the American church become weak rapidly, exponentially overnight because we don't want to offend everybody. Jesus Christ is highly offensive and he doesn't care. And he's extremely exclusive. He said, you got to come through him only. And he doesn't care. He doesn't bend for your little emotions. And he's going to call sin, sin. He's going to require us to get rid of it if we want revival. And I think we do. And I don't think we want sin. It creeps in, but we repent and get it out. But if you want God, this is what it takes. Ezra has succeeded in dealing with syncretism. Every theologian will call Ezra the spiritual reformer. You know, all he did to reform Israel was get rid of the sin. What a reformation. He succeeded and his success lasted 25 years. Nehemiah had to deal with the same thing when he came to finish the wall. We'll deal with Nehemiah the next two weeks. Father, I thank you for blessing our time this morning. Lord, this has been a rough Sunday school. I don't know who's drinking O'Doul's and who keeps buying and selling Xboxes, but Father, help us to obey you. Father, let us have a sweeter second service because you know, Lord, I'm so politically correct. I don't want to offend anybody with your gospel. (laughs) Father, whatever it takes, we love you. You're God, we are not. Bless our Sunday school, bless the word. May we be students of the word. May we seek revival no matter what the cost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.